quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Almost five years since Hurricane Maria and Puerto Rico is getting walloped again now. The lead starts right now. Rising water washing away bridges and roads as Hurricane Fiona slams into Puerto Rico. So far, emergency crews have rescued a 1,000 people trapped by the floods, and the majority of the island has lost electricity. Then, President Biden's administration securing another detainee's freedom. An American held captive in Afghanistan for more than two years is released in a prisoner swap with the Taliban. What this might mean for Americans that the State Department says are wrongfully detained in Russia. Plus... An alarming, growing trend across the country. More books are being banned from school libraries and reading lists in more districts and more states, according to a new report. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today in our national lead, Hurricane Fiona wreaking havoc on several Caribbean islands. The storm made landfall this morning in the Dominican Republic as a Category 1, but is expected to become a major hurricane by Wednesday, that's after Fiona hit Puerto Rico on Sunday, dumping more than two feet of rain on some parts of the island and knocking out the entire power grid there. Puerto Rico, which is still recovering from the devastation caused by Hurricane Maria in 2017, once again is suffering catastrophic flooding, rivers overflowing, causing major infrastructure damage. You can see this bridge, this bridge which was rebuilt after Hurricane Maria, being swept away by the rushing waters. Another river, the Guanajibo, rising to 29 feet, surpassing the record set in 2017. We're going to start our coverage with Leila Santiago, who is in Puerto Rico, where most communities are still struggling without power. Almost the entire island of Puerto Rico remains in the dark after Hurricane Fiona slammed into the southwestern coast of the island Sunday afternoon. Pounding rainfall causing catastrophic mudslides and flooding. The storm coming just as parts of the island were finally recovering from Hurricane Maria's destruction five years ago. It's been rough. We've been just working to get back this neighborhood, get it back from Maria, that everything was destroyed. Restaurants, houses, everything was destroyed. And we just, we just, not all the way back, but we just halfway back. A lot of people... More than Maria lost their houses now, lost everything on their houses because of the floating. This is the barrio, the neighborhood where the National Guard had to come and rescue people. Still a lot of flooding. I can hear generators powering the home, and it is still pouring down with rain. Neighbors looking out, wondering exactly what will come next as Hurricane Fiona, the remnants of it, continue to demolish this area. The family rescued overnight, now safely in a shelter. She says this was worse than Maria. She's pointing out that they've already been underwater for 24 hours and the rain is still coming down. So she's concerned about the 2,500 families that she says are impacted by this here. About a 1,000 people rescued from floodwaters. Hundreds more rescue efforts still underway as emergency responders try to navigate through difficult-to-reach areas. 
In Utuado, the interior part of the island, 25-year-old Leomar Rodriguez watched this bridge come apart in just minutes and wash down the river. On the west side of the island, rainfall swelling the Guanajibo River in Orvigueros, surpassing its previous record height at 28.59 feet, set during Hurricane Maria, now gouging to over 29 feet, the National Weather Service said. While a few hospitals have regained power, emergency workers are racing to get electricity back to the island. It takes so long to get things back up because so many of the systems are connected. And some of the main lines go through the hills there. And if those main lines get damaged, they don't have the ability to to get the other sections up and running. Overnight, President Biden approving an emergency declaration for Puerto Rico that authorizes all emergency measures needed, including FEMA. There's 300 responders on the ground from FEMA working hand in glove with the Commonwealth and their emergency management structure. And Jake, we've just learned the governor confirming that there have been two deaths in the shelters. Uh, At this point, uh, they believe that they were based off of natural causes. But, you know, that is part of the concern. People here are fearing the worst. And I have got to mention the timing here. Tomorrow will be the five-year anniversary of Hurricane Maria. So there's a lot of anxiety and trauma. People remembering that five years ago today, they were left for months without power in water. So there is a lot of anxiety among people who were looking out, wondering what will happen next, when this will stop, how quickly will emergency crews be able to respond, that given that now you're likely going to see a lot of runoff coming from the interior and the mountainous areas, Jake. All right, Leila Santiago, thank you so much. Joining us now, Major General Jose Reyes. He's the commanding officer of the Puerto Rican National Guard. General, uh, you're leading the National Guard response in Puerto Rico. What are you seeing on the ground there? Do your officers have what they need to manage the storm and help the people of Puerto Rico? We do have all the resources. Uh, many lessons that, that we learned after Hurricane Maria, uh, starting with the prepositioning of equipment and personnel 72 hours before the impact uh, of this type of uh, natural disaster. So we did preposition all our personnel and equipment without the, within the 27 armories that we have uh, around the island. Uh, with that said, we have currently conducted over 30 uh, missions of um, search and rescue and uh, to protect the life uh, that resulted in over a thousand people being rescued in, in areas that were completely floated. Uh, a biggest difference between Hurricane Maria and uh, Hurricane Fiona is the amount of rain that uh, this uh, uh, hurricane brought to Puerto Rico in many areas uh, over 30 inches of rain. Uh, yes, uh, Hurricane Maria brought about 40 inches, but it was in a specific area along the center of the island. That's mm-hmm. not the case with uh, Hurricane Fiona. It, it brought rain all over the island, and uh, many of the areas and uh, suburban areas were completely floated. Uh, so we have been deeply engaged in search and rescue missions, so, as well as uh, out clearance missions. So the storm wiped out the entire power grid for Puerto Rico. Some power has been restored to parts of the island, but most of the people on the island are without power. In 2017, uh, after Hurricane Maria, some homes didn't have power restored for months. Uh, might that repeat itself with this storm? I don't think that will be the case. Uh, uh, 
the uh, private uh, company that runs the electricity in Puerto Rico now used to be run by the government. Uh, they are doing their assessment. They're already uh, uh, utilizing their three helicopters and flying over the main uh, distribution lines in Puerto Rico uh, to conduct an assessment of the damages. But most of the damages at the island were caused by the amount of rain, not by the uh, the speed of the winds that we uh, that we experience here in Puerto Rico that average about 75 miles because most of the wind or damages caused by the winds were on the southern part of the island. That's not the case in the rest of the island. Mm-hmm. So we have video of the Salto Arriba bridge being swept away from flooding from Hurricane Fiona. This bridge was rebuilt in 2018. Uh, after it was damaged uh, by Hurricane Maria, the construction cost more than $780,000. Can the island afford to keep rebuilding every few hurricane seasons? Well, it, it is important to mention that that bridge was a temporary bridge. It was not the, it was not, uh, the scheduled uh, permanent bridge to, to be located there. Uh, yes, the National Guard helped. Uh, to put together this type of bridge. These are the typical bridges that we use on the armed forces that the government of Puerto Rico did acquire uh, to cover some uh, areas that were isolated as a result of Hurricane Maria. But it was not the permanent bridge uh, Hmm. scheduled for it. As a matter of fact, that bridge was scheduled uh, for construction to begin next uh, year, 2023. All right, Major General Jose Reyes, thank you. Please stay in touch with our team. Uh, sometimes if people aren't able to get the help they need from the federal government, it helps to have the, the news media shining a light. And we're always, always more than willing to, to help our friends in Puerto Rico uh, with that. So thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. Let's turn to our world lead now. In the Queen's final journey today, leaders from around the globe joined the royal family to say their final goodbyes to Queen Elizabeth II. CNN's royals correspondent Max Foster followed every step of the funeral, attended by thousands and thousands and watched by millions in a final tribute to seven decades on the throne. Prime ministers, presidents, leaders and dignitaries from around the world, more than 2,000 inside London's Westminster Abbey, joined together in chorus. The Lord is my shepherd, reputedly the Queen's favourite hymn sung during her wedding to Prince Philip in this very hall when she was a 21-year-old princess. The younger royal generation, Charlotte and George, joined the procession. Their attendance, something the Prince and Princess of Wales took time to consider, CNN understands. Decades of meticulous preparation and centuries of tradition, the Queen was instrumental in planning this funeral. Her family escorted the coffin drawn by 142 Royal Navy personnel. The short journey from Westminster Hall to Westminster Abbey. Draped in the royal standard and topped with the imperial state crown, the sovereign's orb and scepter. Amid the wreath, a handwritten note from the king in loving and devoted memory, Charles R. Few leaders receive the outpouring of love that we have seen. After readings and blessings for two minutes, the attendees, the choir and the nation all fell silent. Big Ben tolled 96 times. 
guns unloaded as the procession continued on its final journey. Crowds lined the streets all the way along the route from London to Windsor. The military flanked the three-mile long walk leading to the castle. At the end of the ceremony, the crown, the orb, the scepter were removed by the crown jeweller, separating the queen from her crown for the final time. For the first time performing the ritual on camera, the most senior official in the royal household, the Lord Chamberlain, broke his wand of office and placed it on the coffin, symbolising the end of his and the monarch's service. As the coffin lowered, the sovereign piper, who for decades played for Elizabeth every morning as her personal alarm clock, sounded the final lament at Her Majesty's request. The period of national mourning in the United Kingdom has officially ended, but for the royal family, it continues for another week. A chance for the family to reset, recuperate before royal diaries start again with King Charles as the monarch. Jake. All right, Max Foster, thank you so much for that report. And along with thousands of mourners, a send-off from the Queen's beloved animals, Royal Welsh Corgis Sandy and Mick, usually at Her Majesty's feet or following her around the castle. They awaited their owner's coffin today, along with the Queen's favorite horse, Emma. Let's bring in CNN's chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward, in Windsor, England. Clarissa, we understand the Queen has been officially buried now. That's right, Jake. So there was a private ceremony for the royal family at about 7.30 p.m., and we are now learning uh, that the Queen has been laid to rest in her final resting place now in a, in a sort of annex in uh, that chapel, in the King George VI Memorial Chapel. She's buried there with her sister, with her mother and father, and her beloved husband of 73 years, Prince Philip, has also been moved to be buried alongside her. And this is something, uh, Jake, that the Queen had really participated heavily in the planning for her own funeral. Every single detail carefully choreographed over many years to make sure it was just exactly as she wished for it to be, Jake. And Clarissa, we also saw the Queen's uh, crown removed from her coffin today. The next person to wear it will be uh, King Charles at his coronation, presumably after it's been uh, adjusted to better fit him. Do we know when that will happen? Well, that's the big question, and the answer simply, Jake, is is that we don't know exactly. It should happen within the year. Uh, from what we're hearing, no one expects it to happen this year, uh, but there's been some possible discussion about spring of next year, but really that's speculative. What you're referring to today was this sort of extraordinary symbolic moment where you saw the scepter, the orb, the crown taken from uh, atop of the royal coffin, placed on the mantle, uh, and then sort of a symbolic handover of power, as you will, a seamless transition from the queen, that crown taken away from her for the last time as King Charles III now assumes his royal duties. And you've been uh, working all day there uh, from early morning to now. Um, give us a sense of, of the day. Was it somber? Was it uh, respectful? Was there anything about it that was uh, celebratory? I mean, 70-year reign is unheard of. 
It is, and I think everybody who was out on the streets today, the hundreds of thousands in London and here in Windsor, seem to be really cognizant of that and feeling the intensity and, and, and the weight and the import of the moment in terms of this sense of witnessing a historic event. It was interesting because it felt very somber, very reverential at times, very quiet and thoughtful. And then at other moments, particularly as you saw the royal hearse drive by in that procession, you would see the crowds sort of spontaneously erupt into applause, cheering, clapping, wanting to show not just sadness at the passing of the Queen, but also joy at, at, at having witnessed and lived under her reign and at being able to participate in this historic moment to bid her farewell, Jake. All right, Clarissa Ward, thank you so much. The Russian invaders may be gone, but life in newly liberated parts of Ukraine is far from easy. We're going to visit a city where they do not have any electricity or running water, plus a new look at the lengths that Florida's and Texas's governors went to convince migrants to travel to Massachusetts. Stay with us. In our world lead now, Ukraine's defense ministry says it's found at least 440 unmarked graves in a mass burial site in the recently liberated city of Izium. It sits near the border between the Kharkiv and Donetsk regions and served as a key hub for Russia's invading military during its five months of occupation. Ukrainian President Zelensky says some of the bodies discovered showed signs of torture. Zelensky blaming Russia for what he calls cruelty and terrorism, a charge the Kremlin, of course, disputes. CNN's Ben Wiedemann traveled to Izium as its residents are struggling with day-to-day -day life. Help arrives in Izium, bags of barley meal, tins of food. Waiting her turn, Inessa shrugs off the tribulations of late. She's seen worse. We survived World War II when I was little, she tells me. Surgeon Oksana Karpetian hands out medicine. Sedatives are in high demand. They've got half of a year, six months, without any help. You can um, understand what, what do they... What, uh, just imagine what, what, what do they feel. Liberation from Russia isn't the end of Izium's troubles. Much of the city was severely bombarded before falling in spring to the Russians. There's no running water, no electricity, no heat. Crowds gather to charge cell phones off an army generator and make calls, 10 minutes per person, using internet provided by a satellite connection. Lubov and her daughter Angela are calling relatives. They want to leave. Winter is coming. People will freeze, Angela warns. Older people won't survive. They also fear the Russians could return. Nearby, the signs of their hasty retreat. Helmets strewn outside a house Russian soldiers commandeered. Breadcrumbs still on the table. Insects make a meal of fruit half-eaten. On the edge of town, the remains of Russia's once vaunted army before a monument harking back to a different time, which now seems like the distant past. Natasha shows me a newspaper distributed during the occupation. What does she think of him? I haven't thought anything good about him since 2000, she says. He destroyed everything in Russia. The paper does, however, come in handy. 
And the Russians may be down, but they're not out. Just a few minutes ago, we heard air raid sirens here in the city of Kharkiv, and our producer Karim saw what looked like a missile interception. And in fact, this morning, four missiles landed just over a mile away from here. So the Russians, they may have taken a bit of a blow from this Kharkiv offensive, but they can still cause a lot of damage. Yeah. Ben Wiedemann in Ukraine, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, an American man is heading back to the U.S. after the Biden administration conducts a prisoner swap with the Taliban. Stay with us. And we're back with more in our world lead. An American held captive in Afghanistan for more, more than two years is now free. The U.S. engaged in a prisoner swap with the Taliban government of Afghanistan. U.S. Navy veteran Mark Freericks, who was kidnapped while doing construction work in the country in 2020, was traded for a prominent member of the Taliban who was in U.S. prison for drug trafficking. Let's bring in CNN's Kylie Atwood, who's been tracking the developments. And Kylie, this prisoner swap has been a top priority uh, for President Biden. That's right. And a senior administration official said that this release was months in the making, saying that it became clear over the last few months that the key to securing Mark Furek's release was this Afghan drugs trafficker who was serving a prison sentence here in the United States, Bashi Norzai. And once they figured that out, they then moved forward when President Biden uh, decided in June that he would grant clemency to Norzai. It took obviously a few months from the time that that green light was given to get the wheels Turning here, and the Biden administration said that they did do a U.S. government review, which assessed that there wouldn't be any material change to the risk emanating from Afghanistan to Americans or to the current drug trade in Afghanistan by freeing Norzai. We should note that Mark Furex is currently on his way to Germany, where he's going to get medical treatment uh, as part of a post-captivity program that the U.S. government runs. And, and Kylie, there are talks uh, of another possible prisoner swap, this one with Russia. The U.S. obviously has been trying to get back women's basketball star Brittany Griner, as well as former U.S. Marine Paul Whelan. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is at the U.N. General Assembly uh, gathering today, uh, along with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. Do we know if they're planning to meet and discuss this at all? Well, listen, the State Department hasn't said that there is any currently scheduled meeting between uh, those two top diplomats. And that is an area that we'll be watching, however, because the State Department has said is if there is, you know, any remote possibility that a meeting could actually advance their efforts to get home Paul Whelan and Brittany Griner, then they would entertain it. But as of right now, it doesn't seem like that is the direction that they're heading in. And we should also note that Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the ambassador to the United Nations for the U.S., told you just yesterday, Jake, that the Russians will be isolated when they are here in the United Nations uh, for the General Assembly. All right, Kylie Atwood with some good news. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Turning to our national lead and growing calls for an investigation after migrants were shipped north by Republican governors Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott, whom Democrats and activists accuse of engaging in a political stunt by luring immigrants onto planes and buses with false promises of, of jobs and housing only to leave them Stranded, that's the accusation. But as CNN's Miguel Marquez reports, Florida's Governor DeSantis is not backing down from his gambit to bring attention to the border crisis using these techniques. An indication of how some migrants are being convinced to travel from red states to blue. 
A pamphlet provided to Venezuelan asylum seekers going from Texas to Martha's Vineyard. The information provided by whoever the state of Florida contracted with to identify migrants willing to take a chance. The pamphlet offers refugee assistance, including cash and employment services. All the migrants flown to Martha's Vineyard were seeking asylum, not refugee status. More buses, more migrants shipped from Texas to New York City. No heads up, no coordination. This is, uh, as I stated, a humanitarian crisis created by human hands. And it, it, is, it is an all-hands-on-deck moment. Mayor Adams blaming Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who continues to send busloads of migrants to New York City. Six buses already arriving today, at least 22 over the weekend. When we reached out to Governor Abbott and stated, can we coordinate, can we identify, you know, who's traveling here, that we don't have to guess this, they refused to do so. The influx pushing New York City's shelter system to its limit, the mayor says. More than 11,000 asylum seekers passing through New York City's shelter system since May, some 2,500 arriving on buses from Texas alone. To relieve our communities, we have to continue these busing operations. With a sharp increase in border crossings over the last two years, Republican governors say sanctuary cities and states are legitimate destinations. This man says he had a 40-day journey from Venezuela to the U.S. border with a child. They were sent from Texas to D.C. We didn't know where we were going, he says. The bus left us here, and now they didn't tell us where we were. They just left us here, and that's it. These Republican governors say the migrants are willingly going and vow to continue their relocation programs. There's also going to be buses and there will likely be more flights. But I'll tell you this, uh, the legislature gave me $12 million. We're going to spend every penny of that to make sure that we're protecting the people of the state of Florida. Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis defended sending two planes of asylum seekers to Martha's Vineyard last week with funds provided by his state legislature. The law says migrants must be in Florida and illegal. Those shipped to Martha's Vineyard were in Texas and here legally. All those we spoke to having applied for asylum to escape the repressive Venezuelan regime. DeSantis defending paying for asylum seekers in Texas to be flown to sanctuary cities. So they've been in Texas identifying people that are trying to come to Florida and then offering them free transportation to sanctuary jurisdictions. So mayors and governors across the country where all this is happening uh, are trying to figure out what they can do to stop the practice, whether they can do something legally, even going so far as to ask the Department of Justice, the U.S. Department of Justice to step in. It is not clear at this point that they can or they will. Uh, Keep in mind, Republican governors who are doing this say everyone going is doing it willingly. Jake. All right, Miguel Marquez, thanks so much. Growing questions about some weird moments at the Trump rally over the weekend. Stay with us. In our politics lead, former President Trump is returning to Mar-a-Lago for the first time since the FBI searched and found dozens of top secret documents improperly stored at his Florida estate. This comes as the Justice Department asks a federal appeals court to put on hold a Trump-appointed judge's order requiring a special master to review those seized materials. 
CNN's Jessica Schneider is following this for us. Jessica, why is the Justice Department filing this appeal? Well, essentially, Jake here, they want two things. They want to actually get back to using those 100 classified documents that they had seized from Mar-a-Lago that they've since been restricted from using. The lower court judge here, Eileen Cannon, said that they could no longer use those 100 classified documents with their grand jury uh, proceedings as well as the overall investigation. The second thing that they want is they want to restrict Trump's lawyers and the DO, uh, and the special master from looking and getting their hands on that classified doc, those classified documents as well. So they're looking for both of these things. And really, time is of the essence here. Trump's team has to reply to this appeal by tomorrow at noon. And it's possible the appeals court could rule or actually move on this pretty quickly here. And that's because the special master is ready to get to work. He's been ordered to review 11,000 of these documents by the end of November. That includes the 100 classified documents that are at issue here. And of course, as part of their appeal, DOJ wants to restrict the special master from even looking at these documents. So we'll see how quickly the appeals court gets moving here. Jessica, both sides are set to meet with the special master for the first time tomorrow. What should we expect from that? Right. So this is the first move by the special master. The special master here is Judge Raymond Deary. He's the senior judge at in Brooklyn at the federal courthouse. So that's where the hearing will be a preliminary conference tomorrow at 2 p.m. This was all ordered by Judge Eileen Cannon. She wants to get a scheduling order put into effect. So he has to confer with Trump's attorneys as well as DOJ attorneys. They have to decide how this schedule, how this review process is going to move forward because, again, time is of the essence. The special master has to get these documents reviewed by the end of November. But the big question is here, will the appeals court step in in the meantime and maybe restrict what the special master can review? review as it pertains to those 100 classified documents. Jake. All right, Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. In Ohio, former President Trump addressed supporters during a rally for Republican Senate candidate J.D. Vance, during which there were many bizarre moments, including what many observers have noted appears to be echoes of the propaganda put out by adherents of the deranged and occasionally deadly QAnon conspiracy theory. Propaganda that Trump has repeatedly and unequivocally shared in recent weeks on his social media accounts. CNN's Sarah Seidner joins us now live with more on this. Sarah, can, can you point to the things that Trump said or did that are linked to the QAnon conspiracy? Yeah, Jake, you know, this weekend Trump made a very ominous and dark speech about the decline of America. Uh, and while doing so, music began playing and the music sounded exactly like a song called WWG1WGA, where we go one, we go all. It's what that stands for. It's a slogan that was co-opted by QAnon conspiracy theorists and used over and over and over again. For some in the QAnon world, this was another symbol, a wink and a nod to them that Donald Trump is a believer in their outlandish conspiracies. But that pales in comparison to something much more overt that Trump did that indicated a synergy with QAnon. Last Tuesday, Trump used his Truth Social website to repost an image of himself. You see it there. He's wearing a Q lapel pin with the words, the storm is coming, emblazoned across the bottom there. This is a direct reference to the QAnon conspiracy that Trump is going to return to power and get rid of his opponents by jailing or executing them. Some QAnon believers uh, say that Trump's Democratic opponents are evil, that they drink the blood of children, and that they are part of a shadowy cabal of pedophiles, all of which is hogwash. But the belief has created a large enough following of people who are motivated enough to make waves politically. And it appears that Donald Trump wants to engage them. 
These are not at all the first links that Donald Trump has made with QAnon, but this past week have been the most overt. We were able to speak to a Trump spokesperson who responded to questions about the song that was played, saying it was not a QAnon song at all, but a song called Mirror, and then said this, that the fake news is a pathetic attempt to create controversy and divide America and is brewing up another conspiracy about a royalty-free song from a popular audio library platform. Now, the way that Media Matters, a group which tracks right-wing political extremists in media, says Trump has posted or reposted more than 100 messages linked to QAnon since the beginning of the year, Jake. It's unsettling because people who believe in this insane theory have actually taken the law into their own hands and killed individuals. What is the danger uh, of a president engaging and winking and nodding with this group of conspiracy theorists, but beyond just the sheer madness of what they believe. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good point that needs to be made. And in June, CNN reported that the FBI warned lawmakers that online QAnon conspiracy theorists may carry out more acts of violence as they move from serving as what they call themselves digital soldiers to taking action in the real world, violent action. The report suggests the failure of QAnon predictions to materialize has not led to followers leaving and abandoning their conspiracy theories. Instead, there's a belief that individuals need to take a greater control of the direction of the movement than ever before. And the FBI thinks that may lead to more violence, Jake. Insane. Sarah Seidner, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Who is behind the growing book banning movement happening in more schools and libraries in more states? Stay with us. In our buried lead, that's what we call stories we do not think are getting enough attention. At least 50 groups are fighting to ban books in U.S. schools. That's according to Penn, a nonprofit literary advocacy organization. A new report from Penn says these groups are fighting to ban material related to race and LGBTQ rights and critical race theory and more. Joining us now to discuss, Jonathan Friedman. He's the director of free expression and education programs at Penn America. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Your report breaks down the subject matters for the books that are currently there. There are pushes for them to be banned. A majority of them have LGBTQ plus themes or have a protagonist of color. Um, explain more, if you would. And, and obviously, the devil's advocate argument might be to a parent out there hey, I don't want my first grade reading anything having to do with sexuality, much less LGBTQ or heterosexual anything. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm happy to talk about this. You know, in district after district, we've been tracking book bans, efforts to remove and restrict and diminish access to literature for young people. And the trends are very clear that LGBTQ books, books that touch on race and racism, or books that have any kind of sexual content, you know, whether it's a book, a young adult uh, a work of fiction that has a, a couple kissing or a, a book teaching a young person about puberty is on the chopping block and it's the same books being targeted everywhere. Now, parents do have a right to get involved, have a voice, bring their concerns to teachers, to librarians, to school districts, but increasingly we are not seeing any kind of regular processes being instituted in response to those demands. Someone demands a book is removed and they don't want it maybe for their own child, but immediately that book is taken away for everybody else. You can't run schools that way. And, and I've also seen in, in, the, in the news media, I've seen stories of basically librarians getting death threats where, where they have to remove the books because otherwise uh, they're afraid to come into work. 
They're afraid to come into work. They're uh, harassed on their daily jobs. Some have been uh, threatened for speaking out, even in their role as public citizens. And in a lot of cases, you know, you, you, you see the same kinds of ideas circulating online and now being enacted. In Pride Month in January, there was a, a movement called Hide the Pride to remove from, school, from, from public libraries, not just school libraries, public libraries, any books with any LGBTQ content whatsoever to hide them from people who might want to take them. That's sabotaging a public institution for the sake of one ideological contingent. So I have read over the course of the, the years instances of progressives trying to ban books, To Kill a Mockingbird, Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer. For this study, is it all just from the right or is it a mix? Well, book banning is not a partisan issue in the sense that you see, indeed, uh, efforts over time to challenge books in schools from both the left and the right. And what we need to do is come together and understand that literature exists for people to read it, to consume it freely and publicly. Uh, and, and, you know, our concern really is with the encroachment upon those rights for young people. It's true that in the past there have been threats from the left, and it's not to say there won't be again. But right now, when you look at the 2,500-plus bans that we have tracked in the 21-22 school year, overwhelmingly the groups behind this lean conservative, and they want to remove uh, books that reflect what they see as progressive uh, ideologies. The report also breaks down uh, the bans by state. Texas has more than 750 bans in the state. Florida coming up second, second uh, most bans. Are we going to start to see a divide in the country where kids in blue states and red states are receiving a vastly different education, or are, are we already there? You know, we may indeed already be there. Textbooks historically have been written in different ways for different parts of the country, and there is no question that this uh, issue is breaking down along those traditional battle lines. Um, but for even in, in red districts, in red states, there are many people who live there who represent diverse uh, intellectual perspectives, di different viewpoints, and they all ought to be able to go to a school library, feel welcome, and find books that speak to them and their identities. So the Penn report says that while this movement has existed for, for more than a decade, you've never seen it operate at quite this scale. What do you think uh, is behind this new push to ban books? I mean, there are a few things that are making this moment unprecedented. One is that it's not just about book banning in local school districts. It, it comes at the same time as we've seen a raft of legislative bills proposed in states around the country, what we at Penn have called educational gag orders. And those are bills to restrict or censor what teachers can talk about in classrooms or the curriculum that they can employ. So this is happening on multiple tracks at once. It parallels really historical periods like the Red Scares after the First and Second World War. Then it was about rooting out communism, but today it's about rooting out anything that a particular contingent doesn't like. And so it's kind of a roving target, and, and that's what's making this unprecedented. It's not just local activists. A lot of politicians are getting involved. And across the board, more and more school districts are really failing to uphold even basic uh, levels of process when it comes to these demands. You can't run a school library if you remove books just because one person objects to them. And, and just how do I know this is that across the country in so many places, people are demanding that books be removed from school libraries when the books aren't even in those libraries to begin with. Jonathan Friedman, thank you so much. This just in, a judge has vacated the murder conviction of Adnan Syed, whose case gained attention after the serial uh, podcast. Now Adnan Syed is being released, but how long will he be a free man? Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the hit podcast, Serial, 
made millions of us aware of his legal fight, and today a judge vacated Adnan Syed's murder conviction for the 1999 strangling death of his ex-girlfriend. He's been released, but his fight is not over yet. We'll tell you more about that. Plus, a decision made on a new push to get more commercial pilots in the air faster in order to help alleviate the pilot shortage. And leading this hour, in just a few hours, U.S. senators will receive a classified briefing on the success of Ukraine's counteroffensive reclaiming territory from the Russian invaders. In the retaken areas, Ukrainian officials are uncovering evidence of the horrors carried out by Russian forces. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh takes us to the recently liberated eastern Ukrainian town of Kopyansk to find more evidence of Russia's cold-blooded torture tactics. There's no respite in victory here. An artillery battle still shaking the liberated city of Kopyansk. This occupation slogan, we are one people with Russia, seems comic. Now the Ukrainians have chased the Russians across the bridge and further south. A shell has landed under a hundred meters from us. Another swiftly follows. It's unlikely Moscow can retake places lost in the past weeks. So this is about vengeance and spite. This prisoner has claimed to be local, but they think he's a Russian soldier deserting or left behind. What else Moscow left behind is far uglier. These tiny rooms were their detention centre, where as many as 400 prisoners were held at one time, we are told. Eight or nine prisoners per cell. Booby traps now in their place. A warning written next to this room. So he's writing grenade there on the wall because as they move through these cells, they're finding booby traps left, it seems, by the occupying forces. That one in there, a grenade left under a tray of half-eaten food. And it just shows you the hazards that ordinary people are going to find coming back. Uh, A place like this, sure, used as a key detention centre by the Russians, but... Across this town, the damage is extraordinary, but also, too, is the risk of unexploded ordnance and potentially booby traps. They're discovering, too, other scars from torture. This former prisoner is introduced to us by the Ukrainian security service. He says he was imprisoned about a month ago as he was once a cook in the army. The telephone was an old wind-up model used to send electric shocks into him. He thinks his interrogator was experienced from the Russian security services. They asked him who he was in touch with from the army. The Russians burned their interrogation records hurriedly. Elsewhere, signs of the mindset fueling the Russian invasion. They found time to paint this mural. A Russian soldier, see the Z on his arm, next to a pensioner and the flag of the former Soviet empire, burnished in flames. 
pause a moment here in the bloodshed and ruin and consider how truly odd this is. They were only here a matter of months, yet so speedily tattooed this building with their machinery of pain. So much here clearly beyond use, so few locals huddle in its empty husk. Winning does not heal the wounds, just gives them enough time to feel them. Jake, over the weekend, Ukraine said they found 10 torture chambers on the outskirt regions of Kharkiv, where similar tactics appear to have been used. Also, there appears to be continued advances over the eastern side of that river you saw in the piece there, uh, south towards Russian-supported uh, and occupied territories, and also, too, near where I'm standing in Bilirivka. Today, we heard uh, from Ukrainian officials saying they'd retaken that town entirely. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky uh, denying that there had been, quote, a lull in operations. They're looking to see exactly where the next focus of a counteroffensive will be. But the fighting does continue, as does this terrifying toll they're seeing of what occupation did to ordinary people, Jake. All right, Nick Payton Walsh and Kramatorsk, Ukraine, thank you so much. Let's bring in Ukraine's Prosecutor General, Andriy Kostin. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Prosecutor General. Uh, first, what's your reaction uh, to what you just saw in Nick's uh, report? Uh, allegations of torture, torture chambers, obviously we've heard about these mass graves. Uh, what's your response? This is what I've been reported immediately when this is found. And uh, the main response is that... Uh, what Russians did in Bucha and the European, they uh, proceed and they do the same in other places in Ukraine. So this shows pattern of Russia's yeah. behavior and treatment over Ukrainians. So the same stories, the same, uh, the same, how to say it, the same tortures, yeah. the same rapes and the same people killed. Do you have enough resources to investigate and document everything that's going on in your country? Because obviously you have this newly liberated area in the Kharkiv region uh, and you'll have to have new people to document it and interview people. Do you have everything you need? Um, this is now our priority, not only of the prosecutor's office, uh, office but also of uh, law enforcement agencies and investigators. We have uh, uh, organized our work in, in, in certain manner. So we have uh, some, uh, something like 28 um, investigative groups, which uh, where prosecutor, investigators, police officers, forensics experts are included. And they can work in parallel in different places because what we saw in Izum is more massive, but the same uh, cases are in different uh, towns and, uh, and cities of uh, liberated Kharkiv region. So now it's more organized than it was uh, before, because before we were also shocked and it was difficult to, to, uh, to construct our work at that time. Now it's more organized and we also have, um, um, we have support from our international partners. Some of our partners are, uh, we are in uh, discussion, they are ready to send additionally their uh, investigators and their experts on the ground to work in Kharkiv region with us. So an official from the European Union is calling for a special international tribunal to investigate the war crimes that the Russians are allegedly committing in Ukraine. Do, do you think a special international tribunal is the best way to hold Putin and his armed forces accountable? 
we think it's the only way since the crime of aggression, which is the mother of all other war crimes, uh, the crimes against humanity committed by Russians in Ukraine. So the crime of aggression could not be prosecuted uh, by the uh, prosecutor Han and could not be tried by the International Criminal Court for legal constraints. So the only possible way to punish the, uh, the crime of aggression is a special tribunal. So I think it's not only the political will of Ukrainian political leadership, it's the will of every Ukrainian, so that people committed the crime of aggression should be punished. I was in uh, Ukraine in April and I saw firsthand um, civilian buildings in Zaporizhia that had been shelled. And I, so I know the Russians regularly lie about this and the crimes they're committing. But I do want to give you an opportunity to respond because Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said that the new war crimes allegations are a lie. He said it's the same scenario as in Bucha. Um, again, they're lying. Uh, I don't believe them. But how do you reach the Russian people, given the fact that the Kremlin is constantly denying the facts on the ground, as are reported by journalists and documentarians who are there seeing the bodies and talking to the victims? First of all, we are very open and uh, we invited uh, 100, up to 100 journalists from different media, including international media, to come on the ground to Izum and other places in Kharkiv for them to, to see the first what really Russian did in Ukraine. Uh, the second, I mean, how, how to capture uh, war criminals. First of all, it's important to note that counteroffensive uh, is a chance to capture more war criminals than we have now at our possession. And we know that some officers were captured. There was an information about general, it's, it's not a general, but Lieutenant Colonels uh, is the level which we have at the moment as we pre primarily understand, so preliminary understand at the moment. But we have a chance with the support of our friends and allies especially military support to liberate the southern part of Ukraine. We are ready for this and our troops, uh, their morale is very high. They are ready to go. We need more weapons and this is a chance to get more war criminals in order to make them punished. So you have a sp special unit of prosecutors working specifically investing the sex crimes yes. that the Russians are committing against Ukrainian women and, and girls. We've heard so many reports uh, of this. Um, is it more difficult uh, to investigate and prove sex crime allegations, the mass rapes that the Russians allegedly commit, uh, versus other kinds of torture? It's more difficult because it's very sensitive and many uh, victims of these crimes that they not, don't want to be re-victimized. And uh, it's a very sensitive issue how to reach them and to, to, get, um, to get exact evidences, especially when we are talking about children. But we have people trained to work with them. We have specific techniques and for these type of crimes, to investigate, to investigate them properly, we are in very close connection with our uh, partners who helps us to deal with such category of cases. The other story is that many of the victims, they, they, for different reasons, they don't want to, uh, uh, to report 
about these crimes and we are preparing now the specific communication strategy for the potential uh, victims and witnesses of all of the war crimes, including sexual violence crimes in conflict, to come and to report. Even if they are in Europe in safe place, they can report to our partners in these jurisdictions. We are already established specific rules that mm -hmm. evidence collected there can be used in Ukraine and international uh, criminal court. All right, Prosecutor General Andriy Kostin, thank you so much and thanks for the important work you do. His murder conviction got the attention of millions of, Amer of Americans after the hit podcast Serial. Today, Adnan Syed has been released. His legal fight, however, is not over. Then, Georgia Senate candidate and former football star Herschel Walker is trying to tamp down expectations for the upcoming debate. He says he's just a country boy. Stay with us. In our national lead, Adnan Syed, who was serving a life sentence after he was convicted in 2000 of murdering his high school ex-girlfriend, Hai Min Lee, Adnan Syed is free from prison for now. Syed's case, of course, was made famous through the podcast Serial and a subsequent HBO series. A Baltimore judge today approved a motion to vacate Syed's conviction and released him under home detention. And now prosecutors have the choice of either dropping the charges or retrying the case. This hearing comes after prosecutors asked for a new trial last Wednesday, citing newly introduced evidence, which revealed two other possible suspects. To be clear, prosecutors are not saying that Syed is not guilty. Instead, they're saying they have no confidence in his past conviction and that keeping him in prison as they continue their investigation would be unjust. CNN's Alexandra Field is following this case for us closely. Alex, tell us more about what happened at today's court hearing. Look, you saw some of that emotion as he left the courthouse. That is what was happening inside the courtroom as well. Tears and cheers going up uh, as the judge decided to vacate the life sentence against Adnan Syed. He was in that courtroom, the hearing lasting uh, about two hours with a 30-minute recess in between. Uh, this was a time where the prosecutors were able to lay out uh, the evidence they had presented in their motion, evidence that was gleaned from a year-long reinvestigation into the case uh, that really did focus on this newly developed information about two alternative suspects and also a failure of the state, as told by the prosecutors, to share some of that existing information about two alternative suspects with the defense at the time of the trial. That argument seemingly enough to sway the judge to vacate the sentence. Uh, during the hearing, we also did hear from Heyman Lee's family, her brother, zooming in to speak on behalf of the family, reminding those in the courtroom that for him, this is not a podcast, this is real life. While we did hear from prosecutors as soon as the, um, the decision to vacate the sentence was handed down, we did also hear from an, an attorney representing the Lee family who had this to say, this family is interested in the pursuit of justice. They want to know more than anybody who it was that killed Heyman Lee. Jake. So the prosecutors are, are, are waiting to decide whether they will drop the charges until they get the results from the DNA test. What do we know about that? Right. So they are making it very clear that this is not a declaration of their belief in his innocence. They say that this is an opportunity to move forward with the investigation. They want to ensure that justice is being served, that there is adequate representation uh, for Adnan Syed should there be a future trial. They, dis they say that a decision to go to trial will now hinge on pending DNA results. Uh, they're doing touch testing for DNA. This is a type of testing that was not available at the time that Syed was convicted. So they're trying to expedite the results there, see what they can glean from those results before deciding whether to go to the new trial or 
dismiss charges altogether. We saw Adnan Syed leaving the courtroom today, I think wearing an ankle monitor. What's next for him? Yeah, he will be under electronic home surveillance uh, while the investigation continues and until there is a decision on whether or not to dismiss charges or proceed with the new trial. But really, you can't underestimate or underplay the enormity of this decision. Look, the defense has worked for more than two decades to try to appeal this conviction. Adnan Syed has uh, for years and years maintained his innocence in the murder of his ex-girlfriend. This is a day that came, we have to remind ourselves, not just because of the defense's efforts to to clear him or exonerate him. It is something that came because the prosecution was part of the reinvestigation and brought forward this motion to vacate these charges. Really a stunning development. All right, Alexander Field, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, the expectations game. Georgia's, uh, why Georgia Senate candidate and football, former football star Herschel Walker says he's just a country boy. I'm pro-life, even in an election year. And to those who suggest that being pro-life is losing politics, I reject that. That was Republican Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina defending his controversial Senate bill to ban abortion nationwide after 15 weeks of pregnancy. At the state level, Republicans running for office seem to have little desire to even mention the issue as they try to court critical swing voters. Democrats, on the other hand, seem to not be able to talk about it enough. As CNN's Eva McKend reports for us now, there's no clearer case study about this than the heated gubernatorial race in Georgia. In an election year, even your local farmer's market could become the site of a surprise campaign stop. Stacey, we're big fans. Can we get a selfie real quick? Here in Georgia, the future of abortion rights has become central to Democratic nominee for governor Stacey Abrams' strategy to win in November. How much of an emphasis do you plan on putting on abortion rights in the closing weeks of your campaign? It is going to be front and center in the conversation. Women deserve full citizenship in the United States and certainly in the state of Georgia. And they are being denied that because of Brian Kemp's draconian six-week ban. In 2019, Georgia's incumbent Republican Governor Brian Kemp signed a bill into law that bans most abortions when early cardiac activity is detected usually at around six weeks of pregnancy. The law was blocked until Roe was overturned. Emphasizing abortion rights has proved to be successful recently for Democratic House candidates in Republican-leaning Alaska. And a battleground New York district signaling the issue has likely energized Democratic voters in the wake of the Supreme Court's decision. I definitely think this is something that people should consider while they're voting. I think it could be the difference in our state. A recent Quinnipiac poll about the midterms in Georgia showed 57 percent of likely voters say it's very important a candidate shares their views on abortion. Within that group, 63 percent back Abrams and 36 percent support Kemp. We can get this done. We can do this work. The daughter of Methodist pastors, Abrams was not always a fierce advocate for abortion rights. On the trail, she talks about her personal evolution on abortion, amplifying the issue last month at a roundtable for women who have suffered pregnancy loss. What gives me the greatest hope is that you all are speaking up. Meanwhile, Governor Kemp is principally focused on economic issues, such as inflation, which likely Georgia voters rank as the most urgent issue facing the state, according to the same poll. Everything has gone up. 
In a statement to CNN, Kemp's campaign says the governor has consistently affirmed his position on abortion and will continue to focus on bringing hardworking Georgians relief from 40-year high inflation. That message resonating with Kemp's supporters. People want to make it just about one issue, but I think people need to be uh, concerned about paying for their groceries and for gasoline, too. We also protected the sanctity of God's greatest gift, life. Speaking before a conservative anti-abortion policy group this month, Kemp spent little time talking about abortion. You know, we passed the heartbeat bill here, but we've also done adoption reform. We have done... We have done foster care reform. Historically, Kemp has supported a full ban, with the only exception being for the life of the pregnant person, but praised the Supreme Court returning the issue to the states. While Abrams doesn't support any government restrictions on abortion, arguing it's a medical issue that should not be bound by arbitrary timelines. Kemp has adopted a less strident tone as the conversation about reproductive care has become so pivotal in the closing months of the campaign. I understand people may disagree uh, on when uh, an abortion should be legal or when it shouldn't be. Now, to be clear, as Abrams crisscrossed the state this weekend, she talked about other issues as well, like Medicaid expansion, like the need to reinstitute free technical college and address the growing number of hospital closures in this state. Still, she argues economic, that abortion is not only an economic issue, uh, it is one about civil liberties as well. Uh, and she continues to put it front and center. Jake. All right, Eva McKen reporting for us live from Atlanta. Thank you so much. Let's discuss with our panel. Casey, let me start with you um, and get your reaction to Eva's uh, great reporting there from Georgia. I can understand certainly why that special house election in New York could be driven by the Democrat pushing abortion rights. Is it a risk in places like Georgia, though? I mean, it could be. I think in the case of Stacey Abrams, look at the campaign she's run in the past and how she runs them. She runs turnout elections, right? And this is a turnout issue. This is something where we've seen more Democrats, especially women, get out there to register to vote. And this is an issue they're clearly activated on. So I sort of see it in that same light. I mean, she's done it with black voters in the past on voting rights. Mm -hmm. uh, and that sort of, you know, rings a little bit true to me. I also think you know, I'd be really interested to see, you know, deep polling numbers on the Atlanta suburbs, Buckhead, the surrounding areas, to see how this plays with white women voters who, you know, were willing to vote uh, for Raphael Warnock uh, over David Perdue back in the Senate races that flipped those two seats uh, over to Democrats. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder if uh, the six-week ban, I wonder if, in his heart of hearts, if, if uh, Governor Kemp would do it differently today, make it like a 15-week ban or something that might be more palatable to, to voters. Probably, right? Because hindsight is twenty twenty. Who knew that this was going to be such a, a, an issue in this election, right? I think the thinking was that once it was leaked, that the momentum the Democrats initially had from the ruling was that it may have been dissipated by now, right? What we have seen is that, no, Democrats continue to have that momentum. So I think in hindsight, this is something that, A, Governor Kemp doesn't want to talk about, and then B, if he had to do over again, he probably be, would do it after the election. And I think your point's the right one, Jake. Six weeks, exception only for life of the mother, no exception for rape, no exception for incest. I mean, that's really not where most Americans are, and Georgia increasingly is a, a state that's in the middle. Well, you've talked about this before, Scott. It used to be easy for Republicans to try to paint Democrats as extremists on this because they support no restrictions, mm -hmm. but now, the, now this issue plays the complete other way. Well, it, it depends on who you are and, and where you are. Uh, I think Georgia's bill obviously goes a little further than what Lindsey Graham's been out talking about. Fifteen, you, you know, question about where are most Americans? I actually think they're where Lindsey Graham is. Fifteen weeks, the three exceptions, um, and so uh, I think Kemp. It's no surprise or secret that 
Brian Kemp's a pro-life candidate. I mean, he, he ran as a pro-lifer. I don't think he really shies away from it. I do think that the uh, reporting there is interesting, though. The parties are having two different conversations with two different groups of voters. Republicans are having an economy, inflation, immigration, you know, border crime. And Democrats are having Trump, abortion, uh, climate change, gun violence. It, it's really fascinating when you, you see one election, but two distinct conversations it's a fight that, over well. It's really ama- it's really interesting. I think one of the reasons why Republicans want to have a different conversation is because I do think they are afraid about how how visceral this has become, how effective this has become for women. And by the way, women knew this was going to be as effective as it is right when this was leaked, and especially when the Supreme Court did overturn it, because this is about women's choice. This is about giving women the same rights that all men have to make decisions over their own bodies. And I think what Republicans didn't really understand was how much it was going to mobilize and energize not just Democratic women, but Democratic men, independent men, independent women, families who understand that this decision should be in no one's hands except for the women. And by the way, this isn't just white suburban women, black women, Latino women. There was a poll that just came out of Latino voters across the country. Abortion was the number two issue, Jake, mm. among Latino voters. It's astounding how much this has really resonated. But, but were they in favor of, of abortion rights or were they? Yes, okay. absolutely. Well, just the because a lot of Latinos are Catholic. Of, right. But see, this is this is the anomaly. Privacy, liberty, and freedom. Huge issues among the Latino community. So another uh, big race in Georgia uh, between uh, the incumbent Senator uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock and Republican uh, nominee and former football star Herschel Walker. Uh, They have a debate coming up. Herschel Walker was asked on a campaign stop how he was preparing himself for this debate. He didn't exactly set the bar high. Take a listen. (laughs) Talking to the voters, talking to you. You told me I got to prepare, so I'm preparing. I'm this country boy. You know, I'm not that smart. And he's that preacher. He's a smart man, wear these nice suits. So he's going to show up and embarrass me at the debate October the 14th. And I'm just waiting. You know, I show up, and I'm going to do my best. I've never heard a candidate for office describe himself as not that smart. Yeah, well, if you liken this to a boxing match, right? I mean, he's up against someone who's in Martin Luther King Jr.'s pulpit, right? So, I mean, you want to neutralize his strongest punch, A. B, you want to just, you want the judges to say, okay, if he does land a punch, oh, we saw that coming, that's no big deal. And C, if you're Herschel Walker, if you're able to land a jab or two on that debate night, you want the judges to come away saying, hey, he went toe-to-toe yeah. with him. He, did you see Herschel land that shot on him? This is campaign 101. I mean, lowering expectations ahead of a debate and, and to your point, uh, uh, making it seem like any good thing you do. I mean, any, any, I mean yeah. we, we might agree on this today. Uh, I, I, this is campaign 101. <laughs> and, uh, but to describe yourself as not... Smart? That you, you, Not, you, you, I mean, well, that's like, I'm sorry, but that ship has sailed in our politics. I mean, if anything, you know, people are more interested in candidates who are anti-elitist yes. than yeah. those that's exactly right. who tout their credentials. Sometimes being smart is not the greatest thing, Jake. Not around this table. But <laughs> I think that that in general, people, the, the Republican Party especially, has made being smart, being knowledgeable, focusing your arguments on facts and evidence not a good thing. It, it can be a downside. And for Herschel Walker, who is a huge hero, right, right, among the Georgia electorate, especially the MAGA electorate, I don't think he can go wrong with that. And so I think the, the Warnock campaign is not, 
you know, this is not dissing that because I think they see that that is going to be no matter how, what you think of Herschel Walker, yeah. it's going to be a very difficult race for him. Georgia in general, by the way, Republicans are feeling increasingly good about this state. I mean, everybody thinks yeah. Brian Kemp is is beating Stacey Abrams right now. Increasing good feelings about uh, Walker's position. Close race, you know, kind of a purplish state, but people are feeling some momentum in Georgia. And, and it's, a lot of it has to do with Walker's improvement as a candidate. Uh, and, uh, and you know, obviously we're getting into crunch time now, but it's good, good vibes. Yeah, I down mean, there. it's definitely, it's definitely shifted among mm. people that I've talked to. I mean, earlier in the summer, I would say Republicans were very concerned about yeah. um, Walker's <laughs> state of um, the state of the campaign, the way that he was coming across. on the well, He's out there trail. a lot. Uh, he's, he's out on the trail mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah. And I could see a certain charm there. I understand. Yeah. Why I mean, might. now he is, and he has a background that, you know, I mean, a lot of people know who he is in Georgia, just, just right. for the reason of that. And I think the debate is potentially a challenging moment for him because of some of the things I mean, we have seen that he doesn't often, um, communicate his message in the way that certainly many Republicans in Washington would prefer. Well, he's going to be asked about issues, though. He's going to be asked yeah. about issues. I mean, right. it's not a At question the upcoming about debate. He's well, that's what I'm saying. Like, I mean, it's one thing to say I'm not all that smart, that's but then right. somebody says, "Well, how do you feel about Medicaid expansion?" Right. And I mean, I'm not. I'm, I have no idea if he, if he has an answer to this, but if he doesn't have an answer to it, that's. That, that affects people where they live. I, I think that's right. And, and I think it will affect the voters that he's trying to, I guess, win over in terms of being the one who's going to fight for the issues that they care about. But I, I, I'm not going to dispute anything here because I think the Warnock campaign has got to feel like they are losing. So they wake yeah. up every single day clawing their way to victory. It should be easy since I think they are. So <laughs> well, <laughs> let me ask you another question. Think because, that. because Politico is reporting that Virginia's Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin is going to Arizona uh, to campaign with the Republican gubernatorial nominee there, Carrie Lake. She's a, she's a Trump candidate. She is a big spreader of all sorts of lies about the election. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the ways that Youngkin was elected in purple state Virginia, purple Commonwealth Virginia, uh, is by kind of keeping Trump at something of a distance, not embracing the big lie, not talking about the big lie, and yet here he is out there uh, endorsing Carrie Lake, who is... Uh, you know, who has said that if she had been governor in, in November 2020, she would not have certified the vote for, for Joe Biden. She would have gone against the will of her own voters. Yeah, and Jake, to your point, this is something we, we, we've seen Governor Youngkin do for the better part of the last year, right? Just be MAGA enough as to attract some of the base, but not repel some of those suburban independent voters as well. I mean, we've got to remember, Youngkin is a businessman, right? So this is transactional for him, right? So he's term limited. He's maybe looking forward toward 2024. Running you for go president. out there and you yeah. campaign alongside Carrie Lake. You, you bolster some of your, your MAGA credentials. And then you also, since you characterize or you cast yourself as a moderate Republican, you kind of give her something as well. So she's not too mad. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very illuminating. I mean, look, you should view anything Glenn Youngkin does in this period as part of a 2024 bid. I mean, sure. based on all the conversations I've had, like, that's what everyone's expecting him to do. And so if that's in that vein, you know, what is what is Glenn Youngkin trying to do that makes him different from Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis? It's to try and create space for these people like Carrie Lake while also not offending the people that have been kind of alienated uh, from the tr- from Trump, not necessarily the Republican Party, but from Trump. Now, whether he can pull that off, yeah. I don't know if anyone has any faith in that. Thanks one and all for being here. Appreciate it. Coming up, a goodbye fit for a queen. Queen Elizabeth II laid to rest. What's next for the British monarchy? Stay with us. 
And we're back with our world lead, a final goodbye, honoring the life and 70-year reign of Queen Elizabeth II. Thousands of people, including politicians and leaders from around the world, paid their respects one last time. CNN's Bianca Nobilo is in Windsor, England, with the farewell to the Queen. It was the day a nation said goodbye. After more than a week of remembrance, Queen Elizabeth II, the UK's longest reigning monarch, was finally laid to rest. Thousands made their way to watch the funeral, with the national newspapers dedicating their front pages to her. As the casket made its way into Westminster Abbey, her children, King Charles III, Princess Anne, Prince Andrew and Prince Edward all followed behind. Also in line, Princes William and Harry and two of the Queen's great-grandchildren, Prince George and Princess Charlotte. On the coffin, a note from her son, King Charles, in loving and devoted memory. Around 2,000 people attended the funeral, with politicians and leaders from home and abroad coming to pay their respects. Among the dignitaries, US President Joe Biden, France's Emmanuel Macron, and Japan's Emperor. Her late majesty famously declared on a 21st birthday broadcast that her whole life would be dedicated to serving the nation and Commonwealth. Rarely has such a promise been so well kept. A short trumpet call announced two minutes silence that hushed the nation. Broken only by the national anthem. From there, the pageantry and mourning continued as the Queen's coffin was led by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, escorted by the Royal Family and flanked by thousands of guards and onlookers. Cannons fired as her coffin passed by, ready for her final journey to Windsor. At a final smaller service with a symbolic handover, the Queen's coffin was lowered into the royal vault as the Sovereign Piper played, a personal request of the Queen herself, according to Buckingham Palace. On the eve of her funeral, Buckingham Palace released an unseen picture of the Queen, taken earlier this year ahead of her Platinum Jubilee. A fitting tribute for 70 years of service. A day that began with the grandest of state funerals ended with a private family burial ceremony. The glittering symbols of the monarchy, the crown, the orb and the scepter removed from the coffin of the late Queen Elizabeth II. And she was buried in a small, simple chapel with her mother, father, sister and husband, Jake. Bianca Nobilo, thank you so much. A push to get more pilots in the air more quickly has been grounded by the FAA. We'll tell you why. Stick around. 
Topping our national lead, the Federal Aviation Administration today swatting down a controversial request to slash training standards for pilots. Airlines, of course, have been struggling with a pilot shortage, and a regional airline asked the agency earlier this year to only require 750 flight hours to hire new pilots instead of 1,500 hours, which is the current requirement. CNN aviation correspondent Pete Montine joins us now live. And Pete, the FAA's decision will be disappointing for airlines and trade associations, but the families of the Colgan crash victims, they fought hard to get this rule in place. You know, the FAA here, Jake, is essentially siding with those crash victims saying that you can't back off on training and safety standards just because the FAA says that airlines need to hire more pilots. Airlines, we know, have been struggling with a global pilot shortage, and that's what's contributed to tens of thousands of delays and cancellations over the summer. Who we are talking about here is Republic Airways. It is a regional airline that operates about 1,000 flights a day for American, Delta, and United. It tried to get the FAA to allow it to hire pilots with instead of 1,500 flight hours, 750 flight hours. 1,500 hours has been the standard since the Colgan Air crash of 2009. And Republic asserted that its pilots who graduate from its own training program, its own flight school, should be given a break here. The FAA said in a statement it determined that the airline's new training program does not provide an equivalent level of safety as the regulation requiring 1,500 hours. So the FAA here is essentially citing with pilot unions who push back against this. If you can't fix it from the bottom, then there's another option, fixing it from the top. And there are some who argue that the mandatory retirement age, federally set by the FAA for commercial pilots, right now set at 65, should be changed to 68. That could potentially alleviate some of these pilot shortage issues, but that's controversial too, Jake. The regional airline that we're talking about, Republic Airlines, argued that dropping the 1,500-hour 1500-hour rule would also increase diversity among the ranks of pilots. How would it do that? It makes this big argument, and it's true, that becoming a pilot is incredibly expensive. Republic essentially lays this out and says, if you want to get to 1,500 hours, which is the standard now, you need to spend between $170,000 and $220,000 to get to that point. And there are groups that say that these are really big barriers to entry, especially when you consider the demographics. These are the, this is the data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Only about 5% of airline pilots are women. 11% are people of color. So if you change this, if you bring the regulations down, then you could let more people in the door and really change aviation in a big way. It's a field dominated predominantly by white men. All right, Pete Montine, thanks so much. Appreciate it. A kidnapping hoax involving a California mother, her ex-boyfriend, and DNA test results. A sentence has been issued in this bizarre case. Stay with us. In our national lead, a Northern California woman is going to prison for faking her own kidnapping. Sherry Papini was sentenced today to a year and a half in prison, and she has been forced to pay more than $300,000 in restitution. She lied about being abducted and branded and chained in a closet after she disappeared while out for a jog in November 2016. Then in 2020, her story fell apart because investigators connected DNA from her clothing to an ex-boyfriend, who then admitted that the supposed kidnapping had been a hoax. Papini pleaded guilty to mail fraud and for lying to the FBI in April of this year. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. We actually read them. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead from whence you get your podcasts. All just sitting there like a, like a stalk of sweet corn. 
Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer. He's right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. I'm going to send him a pizza. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.